0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the NFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Marka Vitadu about the new book, Intelligent Love, the story of Clara Park, her autistic daughter, and the myth of the refrigerator mother. How one mother challenged the medical establishment and misconceptions about autistic children and their parents. Intelligent love is a fierce defense of a mother's right to love intelligently. The value of parents' first-hand knowledge about their children and an individual's right to be valued by society. Well, Marga, welcome to the show.
0: Hello. Thanks for having me with you.
1: So how are you? How was your week?
0: Well, it was uh, pretty uneventful, which these days it's a good thing, right? After the uh, uh, very difficult couple of years that we all had and that many people still have for for the pandemic, the war, and all sorts of issues that we're dealing with.
1: So can you tell us what do you do?
0: Well, I am at the moment a professor of the history and philosophy of science at the University of Toronto. And so I was trained as a historian and philosopher of science.
1: And what got you interested in philosophy and especially history and philosophy of science? Well, um,
0: I was born in a small town in Spain and the name is Acosta, near Alicante in the Southeast of Spain. And um, I left my uh, small town to study philosophy at the University of Valencia. Then I got a PhD in philosophy of science. Then I got a fellowship to go to the US, where I was a professor um, at Arizona State University for a while, and then decided to do history of science. So I went to Harvard University, where I got a PhD in history of science. And then I came to Toronto. But all that uh, traveling and moving and studying different things was always motivated for two big questions that interested me. The first was, how do we know the world around us? And the second is, what do we do with that knowledge, right? And more specifically, how can we use it to lead a good life? So those are big both philosophical and sort of existential questions that I think many of us have, but uh, they led me first into philosophy of science. And I focused on biology because I really thought, well, we are biological beings. So if we are going to understand how we behave and how we act, we surely need to understand our evolutionary history and our biological makeup. But so I became a philosopher of biology. And then I also realized, well, it's not only how we reach knowledge or the knowledge we get, but it's how we use it, right? So we use scientific knowledge often to justify certain worldviews, certain policies, certain ideas about who we are and how we should live. So I became interested in learning not only about the development of scientific ideas, but also about the use of those ideas in different times and places. And that led me to the study of the history of science. So what I do is sort of a little bit hybrid in the sense that we study the science and we study the history. and. As you know, we live in a world that is increasingly shaped by science and technology. And I think it's very important that we understand the role of science in that world, right?
1: And during your career journey, so you were moving around uh, quite a lot. Were there people who really supported you along the way? Were there mentors that really stood out? Absolutely,
0: I mean, I don't know. if, For many of us, I think it may take a while, but we realize how important teachers were in our lives, right? I just still remember that. I'm coming from a small town, right? And coming from a generation that I am one of the first few women who studied in my town. I mean, in the sense of going to university and... Uh, Surely, you don't go anywhere without the support of teachers and the encouragement of many teachers. So, I still remember my um, teachers in um, sort of primary school and secondary school, but certainly at a certain point, it was instrumental to have the support of mentors in the history of science. My uh, PhD advisor. Uh, Peter Gallison is actually a leading historian of science and a specialist in the history of physics. Um, So it was really great and very encouraging for me that he supported my studies in very different areas, like the study of ideas about maternal love and about emotions and things that were very far from his own uh, field, but um, that made it even more um, important for me to, to go on thinking that what I was doing was worthwhile because not only people who work exactly in what I do, but people in my field who do very different things were very supportive. So he was instrumental in helping me. He still is. So I still discuss all my ideas and projects with him. And it is great to have mentors. It's very important.
1: And what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers?
0: Well, precisely because having good mentors is so important, I think that uh, taking your time, if you are at the university, both as an undergraduate and as a graduate, in finding the right classes, the right courses, and the right mentor for you. It's very important. Look, I went to, uh, I did two PhDs. The first one in philosophy and the second one in history of science. And the second one went much better but because I had the experience that I also had to be an active agent in shaping my studies. I couldn't just go and take um, any courses or just leave it up to luck. So I did my research in finding out uh, who were good professors, who were good mentors, and I'm finding the right fit, right? Don't get discouraged if you approach a professor, for example, and that person is not interested or that person is not a right fit for you because in, with the mentor is like with any other relationship, I mean, two people may be very good people, very kind people, very smart people, and still don't work well together because we all have different personalities, different ways of relating to each other. So my, I think if I learn one thing is don't get discouraged if you approach someone and it doesn't work because it takes a while to find someone who is um,
1: the right mentor for you. Excellent. So your latest book is Intelligent Love, the story of Clara Park, her autistic daughter, and the myth of the refrigerator mother. So what inspired you to write it?
0: Uh, Well, as I said, I was interested in understanding how biology influences who we are and what we do. And um, when I started my dissertation in the history of science, I focused on the notion of instinct, um, because we believe there are certain behaviors that were sort of born with it, or that biology has shaped or uh, determined even. And so the world may have changed. We don't call them instincts any longer, but it is this idea that biology really plays a strong role in shaping those behaviors. And I focused on changing views about the maternal instinct. And one thing that I realized immediately is that very often to develop views about human behavior, researchers look at animal studies. And then those studies are extrapolated to human affairs. So. I examine how the phenomenon of imprinting, which the Austrian animal researcher Conrad Lorenz studied in ducks, was used by psychiatrist John Borby to justify the view that children need maternal care and love. And in this, it, you know, let me be clear about this. I don't mean that children are better off with a mother. I mean, of course, you're better off with a mother. I mean, if you have a mother and you have a loving mother, a supportive mother, that's better than a mean mother or no mother. So that's common sense. We don't need science for that. But Bowlby in the 50s and 60s argued something much stronger, which is that the mind of a child was determined by maternal care and love. So if you don't have that maternal care and love, uh, you will develop as a psychopath or criminal or develop a number of mental conditions. And that's a very strong view. And, So that led me first to write the book, which is called The Nature and Nurture of Love from Imprinting to Attachment in Cold War America, in which I examined how these experiments carried out with monkeys and ducks and were extrapolated to support this determinant view of maternal care. And one of the things that at the time uh, people argued is that the lack of maternal love could also cause autism. So once I finished that book, I decided to focus on the um, area of autism because I wanted to write the book showing that the ideas we have about emotions, about human behavior, are not only ideas sort of in, in the realm of textbooks or the classroom, I mean, these ideas and uh, especially the wrong or erroneous ideas hurt people. So they affect uh, people's lives. So I decided to write this history of autism. There are many histories of autism out there, right? But I wanted to show how the science affects people and at the same time how people are not passive victims, but they often also challenge some of the ideas and help I helped transform those views in science and society. So that's why I decided to write this book, which combines the history of autism or scientific research on autism with the story of a particular mother and daughter, Clara and Jessica Park. So to show the influence of science on people and also the role of people in challenging some scientific ideas.
1: Well, let's dive into the story and science. So just, can you set us the scene? Where and when do we start?
0: The story, so, well, first, uh, you know, I start in the book uh, telling the reader who was Clara Park, right? So Clara Park was born in 1923 and grew up between two different worlds, uh, between Virginia, during a very racist time, especially among her family who was upper class and uh, New York, which was at the time a very progressive and intellectual milieu. And so she went back and forth because her mother couldn't um, always take care of her. And um, eventually she went with a scholarship to Radcliffe College and um, got an education in uh, literature english literature and then she just by her own account followed the social expectations of the time which was choosing motherhood over a career so She met uh, her husband. Um, He was a student in Cambridge. He was a student at Harvard. Um, And he got the job uh, teaching physics at Williams College in a peaceful town, Williamstown in Massachusetts. So Clara Park followed him first earlier to complete his PhD. And then later, when he got the job to Williamstown. Again, following the standard path for women of the time, she devoted herself to raising a family. And uh, so she had three children. Uh, She was very happy and content with them and uh, her life, but her long-term passion was literature. So she wanted to write and to teach literature, and she was ready to do that after her children were a little bit older. And a sort of uh, without expecting it, she found herself pregnant with a fourth child, and she had to put those plans on hold. So um, she gave birth to Jessica, Jessica Park, and from from the beginning, uh, Clara noticed that Jessica was different from her older siblings. So. Uh, Right from the start, but more certainly when Jessica was about two years old, Clara realized that Jessica did not engage with her surroundings. She did not reach for any objects. She was not very interested in other people. She seemed content just sitting on the floor by herself. And Clara was an experienced mother, right? So she had other children. So first, she wasn't too worried. She knew that we all develop in different ways and we all have different personalities. So when she noticed this thing, she thought, well, maybe this was just a sign of Jessica's uniqueness. Um, but as time went on, she started wondering whether you know, these peculiarities could be signs of some developmental issue. And... Um, So at the time, uh, the parents of disabled children were just advised to leave them in an institution. And there are many famous people, for example, who did. But uh, the Parks and Clara decided to raise Jessica at home. And uh, Jessica was diagnosed as autistic in 1961, when she was about three years of age. And uh, Clara, because there was no no much advice about how to uh, help a child like Jessica, Clara decided to work with her as a good scientist would do. She observed her systematically, she took copious notes, she tried like little experiments with toys and games, and she kept records of her progress. But when she brought Jessica to the experts, she expected some recognition for her efforts, but she didn't get it.
1: So, was her, were her and her family's experience with the medical establishment sort of usual thing of the day?
0: Yeah. So, um, when, as I mentioned, when Jessica was diagnosed in 1961. Um, psychiatrists and psychologists knew very little about autistic children although the condition had been known for uh, a couple of decades. I mean autism as a word was introduced early in the century. I mean the Swiss psychiatrist Eugen Bloyler Um, introduced the term in 1911 when he wrote about uh, schizophrenia, which is also a term that he also introduced in the psychiatric literature. So Bloyler used autism to refer to the tendency to self-isolate of uh, schizophrenic patients. And uh, the term was immediately adopted by other psychiatrists who started using it to uh, refer to self-isolation as a symptom of childhood schizophrenia. So nobody really um, think at the beginning that uh, children could have schizophrenia, but many children who display this autistic behavior uh, were thought to uh, have early signs of a, uh, childhood schizophrenia. So at the beginning, it, autism was not recognized as an independent condition. But in the late 1930s, two researchers, Hans Asperger in Austria and Leo Kanner in the United States, identified autism as a syndrome or an independent condition. And in the United States, the most influential work uh, was by Leo Kanna. And Kana was working at Johns Hopkins University. He was focusing on child psychiatry, which itself was a pretty new field in the 1930s. But he started seeing some children who did not fit the standard categories of the time. Right at the time, if a child showed some developmental problems. Well, it was considered that either had a cognitive disability uh, or that uh, it had some psychopathy, like early schizophrenia. But uh, kind of realized that these children really did not fit either category. I mean, these were children who showed repetitive behavior, who uh, showed the desire for order in their surroundings. I had a tendency to self-isolate from their environment and from others. Sometimes they also had difficulties with language. And um, most of these children were just sent to institutions because psychiatrists didn't know what to do with them. But um, I, I, mean, I mean, in addition, you know, often they blamed it on mothers, because, okay. Uh, by the time Jessica is diagnosed, it has been um, about 20 years after Kana's studies, but there had been little progress in understanding the etiology or the causes of autism, and there had been even less progress on understanding how to help these children. So what happened during that period, though, is that Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there were many psychologists and psychiatrists, including John Bowlby, who started defending that many of the children's conditions were the result of the lack of nurturing maternal love. So, uh, Kana, who had first said that autistic children were born that way because they showed their particularities, truly from birth, but kind of started getting influenced by these ideas and eventually uh, ended up also supporting the idea that um, uh, sort of cold mothers, often intellectual mothers, uh, push their children into autism. So as you can imagine, the reception that Clara Park received in the midst of this atmosphere and these ideas was not good. I mean, she first took her child, uh, Jessica, to the Panam Center in Boston, which was a leading center for child psychoanalysis in the US. And later, she took her to the Hampstead Clinic, founded by Anna Freud in London. But Because uh, Clara had taken notes about her child and because she had tried to work with her in what looked like an intellectual way, she was accused of uh, treating her child, as they called it, as a project. So she literally was blamed for uh, uh, causing Jessica's autism.
1: So why do you think the society and the medical establishment was so reluctant to look deeper and uh, you know, even have the conversation with Clara about it?
0: Well, there were two things, right? Uh, one is that um, many of them, as I said, believed that the mothers were the culprits. So they already sort of had tried her before there was, or had made uh, it a very deal before they tried her, right? I mean, the moment she went there and Jesse was diagnosed as autistic, they already had identified the cause, and the cause was the mother. So immediately when she stepped in, she was already someone that they didn't trust or someone that they were blaming. So they were not inclined to. Um, to treat um, Clara with respect or to even listen to what she had to say about her own child. I mean, they treated her as it became known at, at the time as a refrigerator mother, which is a metaphor that developed in the general culture to refer to cold mothers, which at the time often was synonymous with intellectual mothers or with mothers who had professional interests. Uh, that is any mother who had interest outside rearing her children. And this comes from Leo Kanna, who actually, um, as I mentioned, had changed her view Uh, First, he thought that uh, autism was biologically based or, but then influenced by all those studies on maternal deprivation, um, at some point talked about autistic children as children who were left in a refrigerator, which did not defrost. So this image, which was published in Time Magazine, in an interview with Ghana, eventually led to this idea of the refrigerator mother, which many people associate with uh, Bruno Bettelheim and his book, The Empty, Empty Fortress. But Bettelheim actually did not introduce or use this metaphor, but it was sort of used for any psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, or psychologist who blamed autism on a cold intellectual mother. So th- this idea already prevented uh, many psychologists and psychoanalysts and psychiatrists, the so-called experts in children's minds from seeing Clara without the bias, right? Because they had already identified her as the cause of her child's problems. And then also another thing that played a role, I believe it's the idea that in science, we have this view and has been developed for a long time in, in, in all the sciences that objectivity requires detachment, that objectivity is in opposition to subjectivity. So who could be more subjective than a mother? So when Clara stepped into a you know a psychiatrist office and wanted to share her knowledge of Jessica. This was not considered a sort of valuable data or valuable information because it came from what they considered a very subjective source, right?
1: But she still hasn't backed down, has she? What? So she still hasn't backed down uh, from her sort of methodical approach to prove what she was seeing.
0: Yeah, you are right. Absolutely. Because, you know, one thing that helped Clara a lot was that she was an experienced mother. I mean, for many mothers of autistic children, when the child was their first child, when they went to, um, you know, uh, get their... Um advice of the experts, and the experts told them it is your fault. well, they may have been shocked they may hear, they may have been depressed, they may have been in disbelief, but those are the experts, right I mean <laughs> So it's like if you have anything else and you go, you sort of have to trust what they tell you. And it was very difficult for these mothers to challenge uh, these views. But Clara was lucky in the sense that she already had three other children and she had treated them all equally. And uh, she knew or she felt she still was affected by what they said. Uh, She actually had a major depression, but... um, Because, you know, you have a child who you realize needs some help, and then you go and they accuse you of causing her problems. So can you imagine how devastating this will be? But nevertheless, once she got out of the depression, she realized, well, she had loved her Four children and treated them equally. So she had more resources to sort of challenge these views. And you're right, she didn't back down. She first thought, okay, she was affected by these views, no doubt about it. I mean, who likes to be blamed for anything and much less uh, your child's. uh, developmental issues, but she persevered. And uh, a very key event was that in 1964, uh, the psychologist Bernard Rimland published the book, which already defended the organic origins of autism and therefore said mother should not be blamed. Now it's interesting because Rimland wrote as a psychologist. Nowhere in his book he mentioned that. He had an autistic child. So he wrote not as a father, but as a scientist. So he left the personal outside of his book. He left what could be perceived as a subjective stance out of the book. But he did, uh, you know, said, He did say that mother should not be blamed. And Clara was read this book immediately after publication and actually uh, read it in a couple of days and immediately wrote a five-pages, single-spaced letter to Bernard Rimland. And there started the correspondence that would, sort of influenced both of them. But let's say that this event was instrumental in encouraging Clara to persevere in her belief that it was not her fault and to write her own views. So in 1967, she published her book, The Siege, where she uh, described her um, experience raising Jessica. And at the time, perhaps even, Up to this date, it was uh, the most detailed um, record of raising an autistic child. So, so, yeah, as you said, you know, Clara, um, although deeply affected by uh, the rejection of the psychiatric profession and the psychoanalyst who saw her and saw Jessica and who often recommended uh, therapy for her, so for the mothers in general and not for the children she did not let these views to um, um, affect her so deeply that she couldn't go forward indeed she took them as a challenge that she had to overcome
1: another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where Bank of America can help in a re- reception, basically, and the dogma of autism, what kind of impact it had on the individuals and their care?
0: Uh, well, first, it had an impact, uh, her book, the, you know, uh, the Siege, which is a central part of my own book, Intelligent Love. Um, first, this book had a very important impact on the parents, right? And because here was a mother who wrote the mother, I mean, Clara Park had read all the scientific literature. She had a very good command of the scientific literature. She could discuss and did discuss things with Rimland and others on an equal footing, but she decided to write her book as a mother. Uh, So this was really important for the parents and especially the mothers uh, who read the book. Because uh, Clara argued that uh, her being an intellectual mother, her being a mother who used her love and her intelligence to help Jessica did not uh, affect Jessica negatively. So for the mothers who read this, it was sort of very comforting to realize that another mother was making a defense uh, for them, all of them. And in fact, after the book's publication, uh, uh, Clara received many, many letters from parents and especially from mothers saying, thank you, you wrote a book that needed to be written and uh, my experiences are very similar to yours. I went to many uh, um, experts for help and uh, we never got the help that we needed either for ourselves or for our child. So it was a book that brought a lot of comfort to the parents and that it was not only nice because um, they felt better. It's because it encouraged parents to get together to form an association, uh, to defend parents uh, The rights of their children for a school and for services for better science. So it was one of the books that was instrumental in starting a movement of the parents to ask uh, for services of all kinds for their children, and um, you know, so that was the reception among parents and. It was also very important, as you say, for the care of autistic children because it was one of the books which ignited this movement. Um, But also, in the scientific community, uh, sometimes the book was seen as a confirmation of their views. But Clara was undoubtedly brilliant. And she was a great writer. Her book is at the level of... Any piece of good literature that you can read. So, for many of the reviewers, they said, okay, this book only proves what we've been saying that, you know, she can be an objective mother, she can be, she's clearly an intellectual mother, she's clearly a mother of high intelligence who is, you know, invested in writing beautifully and and researching her daughter. So for many of them, the quality of her work uh, was taken as confirmation that she was this refrigerator mother. Oh, gosh. Which, yeah, which is really... Amazing, to say the names, right? But it played a very important role in energizing parents. And uh, in that sense, not only helped the parents, but it also helped the children, because the parents started meeting and started also being encouraged to take sort of care and responsibility of their own children, because One thing I mentioned in passing before is after the identification of autism as an independent condition, autistic children, like many other children who had some developmental issue or some condition, perhaps even unidentified, uh, were just left in huge institutions where they often did not have the resources to do anything for these children. So for example, when Jessica was um, uh, diagnosed as autistic, uh, people like Bruno Bettenheim was still recommended what he called parentectomy, which was the radical separation from the parents uh, in his residential school in Chicago. Many psychoanalytic centers, as I mentioned earlier, often offer psychotherapy not for the children, but for their mothers. And sometimes for the children and their mothers, not for the fathers, so not the gendered approach. Can I advise sending the autistic child to a farm, a place where there will be sort of no pressure from the environment and there will be scheduled activities um, and sort of the child could be away from what he thought were the rigid expectations of the refrigerator mothers, and the children who went to residential centers were treated with amphetamines, LSD, or simply ignored and received no support for their development. So, okay, the condition was diagnosed and it was a little bit known, but there was very little that these experts offered for these children. So the parents like Clara Park, who decided to raise their children at home were truly on their own. And um, one thing that Clara's book also did is provide these parents with the few things that had worked for her, right? Whether it was uh, little games or um, little um, strategies that had worked well. Uh, to entice uh, Jessica in her development, to uh, encourage her to interact with her family and to help Jessica to go to school. So in a sense, this book was not only about the theory or a, a defense of mothers. It was not only about uh, sort of changing an idea. It was a deeply practical book uh, that helped many parents to start um working with their children at home and then to start um, asking society and asking the politicians, asking the institutions for better supports for their children.
1: So where are we nowadays with respect to autism uh, diagnosis and care, and where would you like to see it going forwards in the future?
0: Well, now I would say we are a crucial moment for, uh, I mean, for many things, but certainly for what I would call integration and coming together. And uh, first, before I get to this, let me tell you that. I just still think that Clara's messages are pertinent today, right? I mean, one of her main messages in the siege and other writing, she wrote another book about Jessica. She wrote many articles and she participated in a lot of scientific uh, meetings, but also traveling uh, to other countries to help activists. And I think several of her um, main messages as I see them are still pertinent today. One is today, we still blame mothers for whatever we perceive as going wrong for their children. It may not be autism. There may be other things that uh, we think, oh, this is not good for a child. And if you look at many movies, at uh, many uh, series on television, sooner or later, where you see a protagonist who has uh, issues with relationships, Sooner or later, you see that it goes back to his or her childhood and that it relates to a problem with the mother. So maternal affects and care are still Seen as determinant, which is a very parochial view, because in most societies in the world, the child is socialized by many people, not only by mothers, but siblings and you know friends and school and and certainly the father, and uncles and aunts. So we still, I mean, this call that she made for recognizing diversity, in mothering, and uh, it is still pertinent, I think, for today. And the call that she made for recognizing that parents can contribute valuable knowledge about children's development, I also think is still pertinent today, because often our uh views or our scientific views uh, of child development are based on laboratory studies that provide, of course, uh good information about uh, certain aspects of a child, but this could be, as Clara argued, complemented by the knowledge that the parents can provide, which is knowledge of the history of the child, knowledge of the context in which the child lives, which uh, other sciences of behavior have shown is really key to interpret uh behavior, right? When you observe behavior in a human or in an animal, you only see a piece of sort of what it is, a larger process. So you have to interpret what that means. And Clara argued, and I think rightly so, that parents could provide valuable knowledge, right? And in that sense, I think her message is still of great uh, significance today. And and of course, her message that we need to appreciate the diversity of ways of living in the world, right? I mean, Jessica, as an autistic child and now an autistic adult, has to make tons of accommodations to function in a world that is not designed for people. Who are not, um, you know, sort of normative, who don't follow normative views about behavior. But Clara also had to learn to appreciate Jessica's mind and her different needs and expectations. So I think their story together also gives us the message that we still need to constantly interact with different people and learn about each other. So when you ask me where are we today, I think we're still dealing with her legacy in ways that we can improve on many of the areas that she wrote about. And today at the level of science, of course there is tons of science. There is a lot of research on genetics, there is a lot of research on neurology, there is a lot of research on the biological aspects of autism. And and in that area, I believe that we need a little bit more interaction between the different scientific approaches, that it would be beneficial if mm, the different people working on different areas came together more often and sort of put their results together and also another difficult um, issue today is that at least in the last two years per uh, two years sorry not two decades or so there has been a rift between scientists between families and between um, Uh, are autistic activists. I mean, as you know, uh, the neurodiversity movement maintains that autism is just a different way of being. And the recognition of neurodiversity, without a doubt, in my opinion, has been very valuable. And it has helped us to eliminate a little bit at least the stigmatization of autistic people. But on the other hand, there are also autistic people and families who do want treatment. And sometimes these positions seem irreconcilable. But I would argue that what we need is to engage in continuous dialogue to move forward. That, As Clara Park also said, dichotomies don't help that coming together however difficult it might be, and however different our positions might be, is very, very important. It's crucial too. And of course, we also need still more services and supports for autistic people all over the world, right? Not only for children, but also for adult autistic people. So- Oh,
1: wow, we such powerful people. messages.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So, what discoveries in your research and your journey in writing your book, Intelligent Love, surprised you the most?
0: Mm. So, what? well, as you know, I'm a historian, so I do a lot of research in the archives. And... Um, so some of those things were new and challenged, you know, standard views about autism, including things like the fact that although Asperger's syndrome was uh, discussed in, among scientists, mainly in the 80s, the mothers of autistic children were writing to each other, were discussing Asperger's work, and were seeing the wide range of the autism spectrum well before this was discussed in science. So, that was, you know, interesting and unexpected. Um, but for me, at the personal level, uh, the most surprising and interesting and valuable thing was spending time with autistic people. I mean, I when I was working on their parents' archives. I spent quite a bit of time with Mark Rimland, the autistic son of Bernard Rimland, and with Jessica Park. And they are very different from each other. And uh, Learning to know each other and respect the different needs. Like if you go out with Mark, Mark talks all the time. And if you go out with Jessica, Jessica likes to go out and not even use a word. You can go for ice cream with her seven days in a row and we enjoy the outing. We got the ice cream, but she wouldn't say a word. And as um, you know, for me, learning to relate with each other. And having this lived experience of neurodiversity was was crucial for my understanding and actually for my growth as a person, not only as a scholar.
1: So what was your favorite ice cream and what was Jessica's favorite ice cream?
0: Well, mine is always vanilla. I'm (laughs) very boring that way. But Jessica is more adventurous. So we would go to different places and she would choose whatever strange flavor they had that day so and actually you know uh Jessica is a great painter I don't know if you had the chance to look at her paintings but uh one of her um you know skills on uh um is the ability to introduce colors which are not the standard colors. She will paint uh, buildings in pink and, and light green and beautiful blues. And when she goes for ice cream, she also pays attention to the color of the ice cream, which is perhaps something not. Uh, uh, others don't do, right?
1: Well, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
0: Uh, now I'm writing a book uh, which is called The Science of Human Nature is based on um, A class that I taught with a colleague of mine uh, has been very successful, and it focuses on major experiments or key studies that influenced our views about human behavior. It basically has three parts, breaking bad, which asks why do we do bad things? Why? And it examines the studies of conformity, aggression, and the second part is called Becoming Good, and looks at the studies of empathy and altruism. And the third part is called Living Well, and it looks at what science has to say or, uh, about happiness and resilience. So basically, I ask in this book, why do we do what we do? And can science illuminate who we are and help us live better lives? Because So it's coming back to my big questions, the ones I had early on in my small town. And looking at what science can help us to understand ourselves and who we are and who we could be. I hope there are people interested in these questions because, you know, beyond all our differences, I think we all aim to lead a good life. And as a historian of science, I look both at history and science to see if we can learn from those.
1: Oh, that sounds super exciting. I hope you come and talk to us about it when it's done.
0: I will. I hope, yeah, you know, I hope you invite me back. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and I'm really uh, grateful for the opportunity. And uh, I really hope that you know the listeners and readers go and look not only at my book but uh, intelligent. Law, but at uh, uh, the books by Clara Park, at the paintings of Jessica Park, and at the books by autistic people who have made major contributions to many areas in literature, in, in, in the arts, and even in uh, the science and the history of autism themselves.
1: And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
0: Uh, Well, I have a website, you know, which is my name, margavicedo.com, but also you can find my book if you just use Google because it is available in major Uh, bookstores, the chains chains that may be different in different countries, but you know which ones they are. And also I made an effort to make sure that it is available in local bookstores, so... You can also look and support those wherever you are.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you for having me and best of luck with your own studies and uh, your own life, of course.